Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Galatians 2, 15 to 21, sermon title this morning is Justification by Faith. And just as a way of reminder, bathrooms in this building are through the hallway. If you need to go to the restroom and up the steps, adults upstairs, the kids go downstairs. And so upstairs on this way or that way, you can access the bathrooms that way. The importance of justification. This doctrine is a central doctrine to the Christian faith. Justification by faith. We finished last week with verses 15 to 17. This week we start with verses 15 and 17, so we ended with justification last week. We're starting with justification this week. Go ahead and look with me in verse 15 in chapter 2 of Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So you have three statements, three to the positive, three to the negative. No one can be justified by works, three different times and three different ways. And justification is only through faith in Christ, three different times in those two verses. The importance of justification is seen in these two verses and in the following verses. Now, the answer to this question divides Christianity with every other religion in the world. And I want to say this over and over again. Because I think Martin Luther, who I'm going to quote here in a minute, is right. But I want, to, I want you to hear this. How do you answer this question? How can a person be right with God? Every religion around the world has an answer to that question. How can a person be right with God? How can a man or a woman have peace with God? And every single religious system has a structure or an answer to that question. And world religion declares with a very unified voice... An answer that's going to be similar once you get down to the details of those answers. It's going to be very similar when you get to the bottom. And the bottom, the foundation of the answer for all of global religion is this. You can do it. You can get to God. It's up to you. Now each system or each religion then has its path. But it ultimately relies on the fact that it declares you can do this. If you'll walk this path... And if you'll stop doing these particular activities, and if you'll start doing these particular activities, then you can justify yourself. You can make yourself right with God. Your life will be weighed in the, in the scale, on the scales, and to the positive, the, the God, whatever God it is that you serve, will be pleased with you, and you can get your way into heaven. You can earn your way into heaven. That's what world religion universally declares. You can do it. But here's what Christianity declares, and it sounds so bleak at first. It answers back to that question... No, you can't make yourself right with God. You cannot justify yourself. The start to the Christian faith declares you cannot get to God. And if you think you can, you're going to be running in circles your entire life. Christianity declares no man can get to God. But it also declares God comes for sinners. And that's the good news we celebrate today. Here's a a few notable people in church history, what they have to say about the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther says this, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches teaches me not what I ought to do, for that's the proper office of the law. 
But the gospel teaches what Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me. That he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It also is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. We're in knowledge of all godliness consists. Consist. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. And this is kind of like a pastoral nudge here. Beat the gospel of Jesus, justification by faith alone, into your people continually and into your own heart continually. You know there's seasons in life. In the spring, the frogs come out, and turtles come out, and the leaves come back, and the flowers bloom. And there's seasons in life where you go through the difficult things and the good things, but what's true about the gospel of Jesus is we need it just like we, we need the word of God in season and out. It never grows out of popularity within the Christian circles or our need. It does grow out of popularity, but it never grows out of our need. We need the gospel of Jesus always. John Calvin said this, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. It's the hinge. If you get this wrong, you miss all of real Christianity. Jerry Bridges says this, gives us a good and helpful definition. To be justified means more than to be declared not guilty. How many people in the room have heard justification means just as if I never sinned? Anybody heard that before? Okay, it means so much more than that. That barely scratches the surface. Here's what Bridges tells us. It actually means to be declared righteous before God. It means that God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to his son, Jesus Christ, and has imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. It is just as if I've never sinned, but it's also just as if I have always obeyed and always will obey. And just as if I will never sin or have never sinned or will never sin in the future. The gospel of Jesus, justification by faith is so glorious. You've heard it said many times that Christianity, you've heard me say this many times, that Christianity is the only religion in the world that puts justification on the front end. It's such a dangerous do doctrine, the world declares. If you tell people they have assurance of salvation now, again, you cannot control them. You tell them that they're already saved, that their sins are already paid for, even their future sins. If you'll tell them that God looks at you and sees the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's just as if you'd never sinned, just as if you will never sin, just as if you'll always obey, and just as if you've always obeyed. If you tell them that, they'll go out and live life, lives of sin and debauchery. The gospel of Jesus is news that's too good to be true that actually is true. You're forgiven. You're justified right now. And the world has no answer to this. And it has all sorts of accusations against this. Even the Christian heart wrestles with this doctrine over and over again. Sometimes for years. But the truth is you can have assurance of your salvation right now. Now the world, the flesh, and the devil hate this doctrine. They want you to look at yourself. All false gospels want you to look away from Christ and look to yourself. All false gospels do. They want you to build your justification in yourself, build your assurance in yourself. How do you know you're justified? Well, because I've done this, 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 and this this week. Because my affections have been stirred for the Lord Jesus Christ this week. One more quote. This is by Spurgeon. I want you to listen to this, and I want us to listen well. Listen to the doctrine of justification applied in real life. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. But Satan's work is the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us look to ourselves, to regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for your pardon. You have no faith. You have not repented enough. 
you will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of God's children. You are, you are wavering on your hold of Jesus. All of these thoughts are about the self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit thus turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, that it's not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. Listen to the wisdom of Spurgeon. It is not the joy in Christ that saves thee. You may be flying high this week because you read a Spurgeon sermon or you read this passage ahead of time and it just lit your soul and lit your heart on fire. And you came fired up hearing about justification by faith. Please tell me about the doctrine in which all Christianity, it turns. It, this is the hinge by which it all turns. Tell me about the crown jewel of the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification. But it's not even thy joy in Christ that saves us. It is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's the Christ, it's Christ's blood and merits that saves us. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand, which thou art grasping Christ as you do to Christ. Look not to thy hope in Christ, but look to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We shall never find happiness looking to our prayers or our doings or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking to Christ. Keep thy eye upon thy flesh and mind. Excuse me, keep thine eye simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merit, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon thy mind. When thou wakest in the morning, look to Christ. When they liest down at night, look to Christ. Oh, let not my hopes or fears come between thee and Jesus follow hard after him and he will never fail you we can look to Christ and this is good news this morning because we have been justified and today we're going to get one of the clearest examples of justification by faith in all of the Bible we've already looked at verse 15 and 16 and we have seen that justification is not by works of the law look again with me yet we know verse 16 that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Works cannot make a man righteous. And here's the question that I have to these statements. Why cannot works make a man righteous? What are the limitations of works? It's clear, we all see it, it's stated over and over again, but why are works insufficient to save? Well, there's something very important to consider. Number one, we enter into this world as sinners. The reason that works can't save is because from birth we know how to sin and we know how to sin well. And all the parents of young children in the room say, Amen. Amen. From birth we are at war with God. We want things our way. The world revolves around us. We are the center of the universe. And that's why kids that are not disciplined well not spanked, I don't mean harmed or hurt, but who are not spanked and disciplined well, who are not trained in godliness, turn into people that nobody wants to be around unless God gets a hold of them. Because that person grows up continuing to think that I am the center of the universe, that I'm the point, that God exists for me to make my dreams come true, and so on and so forth. 
but from birth we're at war with God. What are good works? Good works are doing the right thing. Obedience to the law of God, to the letter of the law, and by the spirit of the law, from the inside out. That's what a good work is. But if we consider Genesis 2 and 3 quickly, I want want to look at three little verses in uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. I want us to see the problem of works-based righteousness that's been from the fall forward. And I've talked about this a little bit before, so this might be a refresher for some of you. But consider this. From Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may, that's important, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day uh, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we know that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Adam was right there with with her, and he was blamed for that. Man, mankind in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, mankind made our choice. And from that point forward, we were born into this world in bondage in every way we can be in bondage. Spiritually, in bondage. That's why we need to be set free, because we enter into this world in a spiritual death, what Ephesians 2 tells us. We need to be made spiritually alive. We are not already spiritually alive. We need to be set free because we are already in bondage. That's the default of the human condition. Mankind made our choice. From the fall until today, humans are sinners at birth. Therefore, as sinners, when we try to obey God's law, even if we have this moral conscience that's given to us by God's grace, we are tainted and stained with sin and rebellion. So from the inside out, even if we do the right thing externally and we just do the right thing, we give to somebody, when a non-Christian gives to somebody, it looks like in an exterior manner that that is a good work. But when you peel back the layers and ask, why is that person doing what they are doing, what we find is rot to the core. It may look like altruism, but the Bible tells us that sinner's going to sin. That's what sinners do from the inside out. It's not just that we do the right thing, but it's why we do the right thing or why we do not do the right thing that we've got to also consider when we think about the law of God. Now, world religion is birthed right in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And nakedness was a symbol of shame. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves they made themselves loincloths this is world religion 101 i'm gonna fix it i'm going to take care of what i broke i'm gonna cover my own shame i'm gonna cover cover my own brokenness my own sin i'm gonna cover my own nakedness i'm going to fix what i broke this is the history of the world on repeat from that point forward but the gospel is also in Genesis 1 2 and 3 because Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 says this and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them to make garments of skin blood had to be spilled and God would do for Adam and Eve before they were expelled for the garden what they tried to do for themselves they tried to cover themselves they couldn't do it And so God did it for them through the spilling of blood, covered their nakedness and covered their shame and sent them out of the garden. Friends, this is the contrast between religion of the world and religion of Christianity. 
This is what Adam and Eve did to try to fix themselves, and this is what God did for them. And we see this story on repeat, down through the history of the world. We cannot be right with God by doing works of the law because we are sinners and have broken God's law every single day since birth. Now, even if right now, today, let's just say that works of the law was some sort of hypothetical thing, that we could start obeying the law today. And say you're a non-Christian in here, and, and let's just go with the hypothetical. You could start obeying God's law, and so we could hear these commandments uh, in the scriptures or uh, here as we read through the Old Testament. Okay, I'm, I'm supposed to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, so I'm going to go do this. Even hypothetically... If we obeyed all of God's law from the heart and by the letter, how would that person's past sins be forgiven? Because still, there would be enmity and rebellion in the heart of that person prior to when they started doing the works of the law, hypothetically. So how would those sins be forgiven? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is really telling uh, and, and if you're new with us, we're, we're actually flipping through a little bit more than we normally do. But Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this, verse 1, 2, and 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once fought, walked, following the course of the world, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, by, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here is the problem. Non-Christians are spiritually dead and children of wrath. And that's who you used to be. Spiritually dead and children of wrath. Playing the I'll fix it game. Trying to fix yourself. Covering your own sin. Covering your own shame with good works. With whatever false gospel you were trying or attempting to cover your shame. So how then are dead children of wrath going to get right with God by their works? It's a huge question. It's a huge question. How are dead children of wrath, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, and that you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, how are dead, spiritually dead people who are children of wrath going to be right with God by their actions? It is absolutely futile. When you understand what the Bible teaches about the, the state of mankind, the idea of justification by works is so foolish and ridiculous. You see the religions of the world for what they are, doctrines of demons. They're lies of the enemy. They're delusions by, delu by delusional people who think that they can cover themselves in the shame that they can fix what they already broke. Salvation by works is a failed project from the fall till today. And yet it remains such a popular message for some reason, even within Christian circles. Saved by grace, kept by works, baby. Measuring where we're at with the Lord by how we're doing or how we're performing. I remember the first time I heard the statement, I'm saved by grace and kept by grace. I thought that was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. No, 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 no. You're saved by grace and you're kept by your quiet time. And you're kept by the works of the law. Duh. Salvation by works is a failed project. Back to Galatians. Paul says this three times, both to the positive and the negative, to hear that, make sure that Peter knew, and we're all hearing along with Peter today, that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. Now, Paul closes his argument with Peter, and in verse 17, he gets back to the churches of Galatia, and he's going to start answering some objections 
Because there's going to be some objections that came to Peter. There's going to be, they, they did come to Peter. There's going to be some objections that come to Paul. And they're prevalent, and these same objections to justification by faith and not by works of the law are still prevalent today. And I want you to see it in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, so here's objection number one. This is so important. Justification by faith is going to lead to a life of sin. If you tell them they're saved by Jesus alone, this is the number one repeated uh, objection to the gospel of Jesus, the true gospel, is that if you tell them they're saved by grace through faith, by Christ and Christ alone, then people will disobey God. Okay, now let's go with the hypothetical for a second. And Paul goes with this hypothetical. Okay, let's just take that and, and act as if that that's true, okay? If in this glorious endeavor to be justified in Christ, if we're found out to be living in sin, the, the, the hypothetical is, I'm a Christian, justified and by faith, and the accusers are right, and now I just go on sinning and go on sinning, and I'm not living a different life. If we were found out to be living in this gross sin, what if our lives um, were not actually changed by Jesus, but we go on and we live the way the accusers say we're going to live? Does that mean that Christ is a servant of sin? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Why? Because I'm responsible for my sin. Even in their hypothetical. This is going to go out, you're going to go out and just sin all the more. Paul says, even if that's true, look at verse 18, I am the one who's really rebuilding what I tore down. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, that's a life of sin. I prove myself to be a transgressor. So if, even if in this hypo hypothetical, if I go out and start sinning, after that life of sin was tore down, that wouldn't be Jesus' fault. That would be on me. So Paul is facing his accusers. It wouldn't be Christ's fault. Christ would not be a, ser a servant of sin. Quite the contrary. This really is a hypothetical. Because he's going to tell us in verse 19 that Jesus actually changes us. It's a hypothetical because this is not some sort of natural thing that Paul stumbled into. This truth of the gospel actually changes people. You become a different person. You don't stay the same. Therefore, you don't live the way you used to live. There is a difference. Look at verse 19. This is so powerful. Uh, we actually live like we're born again. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here's why. The accusers are bringing utter nonsense. Because Moses killed me. Moses killed me. And the accusers want to make Moses a savior. And they miss the point. Moses killed me. Through the law, I died. It showed me that I was a doomed man. A lawbreaker. Condemned before I started. Through that law, I died to the law. The law, I thought, promised life, but it was that law that killed me. The song that we sang last week, but the law is no hiding place. I, I, the mountain, Sinai, is no hiding place. In John Bunyan's classic story, Pilgrim's Progress, you see Christian walking to Sinai, to Moses. What, what, what's the law called uh, to, in that scene? Yeah, legality. To legality. He's walking to legality. And in the cartoon version... 
And the book, I, I just can't get into allegory. I, I'll admit and confess in a sheepish manner, I've never read Pilgrim's Progress. Please forgive me. All the homeschoolers are in the room are like, oh gosh, you've just lost, lost cred. I've tried, and allegory is so hard for me for some reason, but I've seen the movie. So I watched the cartoon Pilgrim Progress. Jordan and I are watching it. And you know, when you see that scene, I know JT, that was a big movie for you and for several of you. It came out a couple years ago. And you're watching that, and you're seeing Christian run to legality and just getting beat up. And that moment is so powerful. And there's different levels of crying. You all know about this. There's like the crying where you don't want people to see, where you're like, <clears throat> you know, and the man cry, where you're like, and then there's the full-blown, straight-up, ugly cry, snot coming out of your mouth, tears flowing, where you're just, unca- I just can't handle it. And uh, that was an ugly cry moment for me. Like, there is no hiding place there. Promise life. Come to me. I'll give you rest. The law is this glorious thing because it shows us the character of God. And the law is so good. But the law is not a hiding place for us. It actually killed, it killed Paul. The, the law killed me. I died to the law. It's no hiding place. It beat me down. It exposed my sin. It exposed my rebellion. It exposed my inability. Apart from the Spirit of God at work in us, we cannot obey God's law in any way. I died to putting hope in the law. That old man is dead. And God did this. This whole law killed me. It slayed me so that, get this, not that I would be a lawless lawbreaker going around living a life of debauchery like the naysayers are saying, so that, look in verse 19 again, I might live to God. Life. Life, baby. True life, real life, eternal life that starts right now. I died so that I might live to God. I needed life. The law kills, the spirit gives life. And so Paul said, I died. That old me, that old man that stood there watching as Samuel got stoned to death, approving his death, that me's gone. That's not me anymore. That's how I used to be. But that's not me anymore. Through the law, I I was trying to climb that mountain. I was in zeal watching and overseeing Samuel die. That was me and my zeal for God. I wanted to stomp out Christianity because I was trying to climb Sinai. And through that law, I died. It killed me. So that I might live to God. So that I would become this person who, who starts to look like Jesus. Who starts to obey God's law from the inside out. Look at verse 20, verse A. This is so powerful. I have been crucified with Christ. Remember, he's correcting the naysayers. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. I died. I actually died with Christ. Okay, what does that mean? How many of us, I mean, have heard this over and over? I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? When a person, an individual, says that I have been crucified with Christ. Well, there's a couple things that it means. Number one, first, we'll look at first and second, two things. Paul knew that he was united to the death of Christ. When Jesus died, Paul actually died. Paul was judged. And if you're a believer in this room, that's the same thing with you. God didn't just let you off the hook. Let your sins just go unpunished and say, ah, no big deal. Your sorry life that you lived 
and mine had to be dealt with. And Paul knew that his life was united to Jesus. So when Jesus died as a representative, as that federal head, he died knowing that Jesus actually died for me. I died there. Paul, dead. Paul from Tarsus, dead. That's where I died. I was crucified with Christ. God's wrath against Paul for the life that he had lived. Trying to climb Sinai and killing God's people. Paul and God's wrath against him came down on Paul by coming down on Christ, who was Paul's federal head, representative. Jesus actually died for people. And in his death, Paul found his death. I have been judged because Jesus was judged. And I was united to the very death of Christ. This is the great and glorious doctrine of union with Christ. The believer in Jesus, for all of time, is united to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have been attached to Jesus' life. You know when uh, ducks walk around in a pond, and they walk around, and they're just kind of, you know, walking around a little bit, and you see the little ducklings following around the duck? It's like the duck is attached, the ducklings are attached to the duck. They're just always walking around with that little duckling. Okay, like imagine, you know, they, like with Christ, you are attached to, the, to Jesus. You are united. Okay, okay, so we're, we're all like the ducklings, right? We're united, it's like we're sewn in and we're counted as living the life that Jesus lived and dying the death that Jesus died. Like, we're united to his work. And that's crucial for us to understand. Union with Christ. So when Paul looked at the crucifixion, he recognized that I died with him. That's where God satisfied his wrath for me. God's wrath, therefore, for all of those from whom Christ died... And the atonement is so glorious, it's so multifaceted, there's so many ways that Christ died. The, the death of Christ, the atonement of Christ is multi-intentional. And I preached a sermon on this a few years ago, but in short, Jesus' death was not the same for everybody. Jesus died for his bride in a unique way, and he died for the non-Christian world in a unique way. And he and died for the entire co cosmos in another way. And everything he wanted to accomplish in his death, he accomplished. And for you and I in this room, like the Apostle Paul, we recognize that Jesus was our actual substitute. That he actually took God's wrath for us. And because of that, because of that, wrath cannot come upon me because Christ died for me. God's wrath cannot come upon Paul because Christ died for Paul. Now second, secondly... Paul understood that his old man was dead. That's what he's talking about in this argument as well, is that the, the old me is dead and gone. Because what Christ did on the cross comes to us in real life. His old man, his dead self, his former way of life was crucified with Christ. The cross was history to Paul. That's how it is for all of us. We're not living in the day of Christ. We're not living with the crucifixion happening right now presently. It's all past to us. That's how it is for all of us. And it was like that for the Apostle Paul. But the effect of the cross comes to us in our own lives. Meaning, there is a point for all of us before the effect of the cross, before the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes, and we, by grace through faith, repent of our sins and trust in Christ. There is a time in our life that before Christ that we are sinners in rebellion against God, where the wrath of God is on us in that moment. And then what Christ did for us, the Holy Spirit comes and wakens us up, and the cross of Christ gets applied to us. The cross, the ripple effects, it's like this eternal cosmic explosion happens, goes out, 
And the cross continues to move forward generation to generation, nation to nation, affecting and changing the lives of people. And we still see people brought from death to life to this day, and you guys are testimonies of that. I'm a testimony of that. Many of our children and grandchildren are testimonies of that. The power of the cross to change actual people. And some of you in this room, where all of our testimonies are miraculous and amazing and supernatural, some of you remember, and it's just a visible demonstration of the power of God because you were running full speed, maybe even in adulthood, away from God. And you were a certain man. You were a certain woman. And you know exactly what Paul is talking about here when your life was changed completely. And you're not that person anymore. And people recognized it. They recognized the change. They recognized that something's happened because that man doesn't live his life the way he used to. That woman doesn't live the life the way she used to. And for Paul, his life was like this. Every Christian can say with confidence, way before we were born, Christ died for me. And then the Holy Spirit comes and applies that work, the work of Christ, into our actual lives. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, even if that looked like straight moralism, even if your life looked really good compared to everybody else's life. You were dead in your sins, and then the Spirit came and gave us life. The Christian message really is not one of moral reform. It really is one of resurrection life. And you've heard many a preacher say this before, but Christian life isn't come and do better. The Christian life is that God brings literally spiritual corpses to life. It's supernatural. That's why works of the law can't save, because dead men can't do works of the law. Dead men cannot do works of the law. They can do nothing but that which is accordance to their own nature. Spiritual death leads to deathly decisions and deathly living trying to cover their own sin and shame. But now, Paul knows, I have been crucified with Christ. And what does he say? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Here's the the truth of the gospel of Jesus. We were dead in our sins. The Holy Spirit gives us life. We're now born again. We now have the Holy Spirit. We live to God. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. That is why we will not build what we tore down. We're not going to rebuild that life of sin. It was torn down, and it's going to stay torn down. That's why Christ is not a servant of sin, because when we meet him, we don't remain the same. And it's no longer Paul who lived, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. We're going to see two amazing truths, Christ in us and Christ for us. First, Christ in us. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. These are objective truths. Uh, What Paul is saying here are not just for Paul, for every Christian. And there is no category of Christian here, like some Christians who have Christ living in them and some other Christians who don't have Christ living in them. This is descriptive of everyone in this room that's a Christian. This is true of you. Christ is living in you. These are objective truths. Everyone who has been born again has Christ living through them. It's non-optional. And there's going to be times it's going to feel like the fire of Christ uh, is just burned out. There's going to be times like that where Christ in you feels so slow. Like the growth of Christ working itself out in you is going to feel so slow. Anybody been there where, where seasons of sanctification feel like that it was just delayed like a decade? You're like, man, that decade was rough. I mean, Christ is faithful to me, but... Well, there wasn't a whole lot of fruit there. 
and it was slow. It was just a slow process. Then we've been through seasons of our life where it feels like within a year we grew more than we did in a decade. Anybody been there? It's just, we've experienced all this. Christ in us. And it's important that we understand that. That that is a reality of the Christian life and for all Christian experience. Years ago, we had these big, huge burn piles before we built our house. And my dad actually worked to get these big burn piles, about the size of this room right here, massive burn piles. And we had to burn them for over months at a time. And while we did that, as we were burning, there was one time where the, 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 uh, the coals went down and there was no smoke. And it was for a month. It looked like the fire was out. A month later, a month later, a little smoke started to come up. A month after the fire was completely out, there had been rain and everything. Somehow or another, there were hot coals down there still, still just in there. And a month later, that fire lit back up. And if you can consider that as a metaphor to many of our lives, there are times where Christ in us feels like it's just up and down. It's just not a consistent thing where it's always the same motion forward. But over time, over time, we're just different people. Our loyalties are in different places. And in times that we're in valleys or slow spiritual growth, we don't like it. You're in friendship with Jesus. That's the truth. You're in friendship with Jesus, and he is working things in you. He is a friend that is faithful to you no matter what. So don't let the fact that Christ is in you lead you into a life of building something up. Let the fact that Christ is living through you be a deterrent to sin. Sin is now against your very nature. And I want you to hear this, because for some of you, you may be in that that season where the, the coals feel like they're just at the bottom and there's no smoke, there's no flame, or passion has waned. Some of you might be there. Hear this, Christ living in you and working in you is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. But the work of Christ in you is not where we turn our hearts in times of joy, despair, or sadness. We must understand this. We must understand Christ for you. Christ works in you. But your hope of salvation is not the work of Christ in you. Please hear me say that. Your assurance, your salvation is not the work of Christ in you. That's a debate that's gone back for a long time. Imparted righteousness versus imputed righteousness. And it's clearly seen right here. All religion in the world that claims Jesus will say, yeah, Jesus plus. You got to get to work and you got to do this or that. Jump through this hoop or jump through that hoop. Your hope for those in the room that feel like the fire is dwindling, your hope is that Christ is for you. And for everybody else in this room, we need to be reminded of this. The next time that we have a difficult season, we need to remember Christ for me. Because the up and down nature of Christ in us, we sometimes we have to have a more consistent assurance for our hearts, especially in difficult seasons. This is why verse 21c is so powerful. Read it again. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself What are the last two words, folks? Let's say that a little bit louder. What are those last two words? For me. He gave himself for me. Yes, Christ is at work in you, but Paul lived his life in the flesh believing in Christ's death for him. Christ, who gave his very self for you, he loved us and gave himself for us. That is our hope. Our hope in difficulty, our hope in despair, our hope for our assurance of our salvation is that Christ actually gave himself up for us. That was the exchange. His reward was the salvation of his bride. 
He took on our life, we get his life. And when the work of Christ feels slow in us, spiritual growth feels like a crawl, we have to remember Christ for us. This is the hope of our salvation. Christ is for you right now. You feel down as you walked in here this morning? Christ is for you. You in a difficult season and those coals are just sitting there under everything, there's no smoke and people look at your life and wonder what in the world's going on in his life or her life. Christ is for you right now. And the path to the flame burning again is through the great doctrine of Christ's death for you. Continue to look to Christ Jesus. The hope of our salvation is not our relationship with Jesus. The hope and our assurance of salvation is not our friendship with Christ or our relationship with God. Our hope is that Christ died for me. That's our hope. Christ is for me right now. Our hope is that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Christ for me is our greatest hope of security, of our salvation. Christ for me. Remember what Spurgeon said. No, look to yourself. Look to yourself. That's what the devil does. When we're a community of people who remind each other, look to Christ. You're down. Look to Christ. You're exhausted. Look to Christ. You're overjoyed. Look to Christ. We look to Christ together. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. I don't set aside God's grace. Why, Paul tells us? Because if righteousness were by way of the law, something I can do for God, if people can do something for God that will get them salvation, Christ died for no purpose. If salvation is in the abilities of the human being, why in the world did Christ come? In recovery programs, there's a lot of issues with a lot of recovery programs. One of the first things you have to do, one of the first steps you take, is stepping out of denial and admitting that I'm powerless. I can't do this on my own. And until a person is at the spot, at that spot, addiction usually continues. Now, many Christians have never understood, I want to hear this, uh, say it again, many Christians, many, have never under, understood the reality of their own powerlessness to save. They've never understood the state of their own condition, as bad as you know you may have been, never understood how bad it actually was, and therefore, the good news wasn't all that good. You don't know how bad the bad news is? The good news will never really be that good. Just the case. The truth is, we could do nothing. If we could do something about our condition, Christ died for no purpose. But how glorious it is when we understand how deep sin really was, how deep in it we really were, and that we could do nothing to get ourselves out of it, we could not work for it. We couldn't make our, make our way toward our salvation. And that all of our salvation, every bit of it, from the first to the last, until we get home to be with the Lord, was by grace and grace alone. It changes everything. Now, Christian and non-Christian in the room. If you're a non-Christian, the gospel message is true or it's utter nonsense. It's true or utter nonsense. And there is no reason to be in this room right now if the gospel of Jesus is utter nonsense. But if the message is true, and newsflash, it is, it is true, then the call today is to get right with God now. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ and live to God. Repent. Get right with God. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus commands you to repent today. And if you walk out of here without repentance, that's on you. And yet God in his grace has you here today to hear about justification by faith. By the grace of God alone. Now, Christian, here's the deal. Christians get to be thankful for the room, in the room right now. We get to be thankful. This is what life is all about. Our life is different because the Spirit of God is within us. 
Our life is different because Christ died for us. Our lives are to be lives of gratitude, lives of thankfulness. That's what life is all about. That is how we live to God's glory and obey His commandments, is through thankfulness. Be a thankful person and you will live to the glory of God and walk in His commandments through gratitude. Secret sauce of the Christian life, be thankful. And we get to live God's law because we know it no longer kills us. We're not still going to Moses to say, give me life, give me life, give me life. We're not going there because we know we have life in Christ Jesus. We know that the law no longer kills us. We get to live to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you're doing. There's a lot there as we talk about justification by faith. Holy Spirit, I trust that you're going to lead us and guide us to respond in the way you would have us respond. Help us to sing and help us to be thankful. And for the non-Christians in the room, help them to know that this is real love that they're here today to hear the gospel. I pray they would repent of their sins to say they're sorry to you for living and trying to make their own loincloths, try to cover their own shame, trying to fix their own problems. And that they would turn to Jesus right now and tell Jesus, I am sorry and I trust in what you have done for me. God, I pray that you would do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ?